Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, today's episode is the culmination of a long search throughout the Trump years when pretty much every Buddhist I know was bemoaning either publicly or privately the general state of affairs. We decided we wanted to find a countervailing force, a Buddhist Trump supporter. As a journalist, I've been trained to always find the other side. I believe this is a Buddhist impulse as well. In Buddhism, they talk a lot about cultivating non-attachment to views and also what's called beginner's mind. I don't want to claim that I'm perfect at actually taking in opposing views in either my professional or personal life, but I, I definitely aspire. Anyway, as you're going to hear, after a lot of searching, we finally found our person. To be clear, my guest today won't actually say whether he voted for Trump, but he is a longtime Republican who did work for Trump, albeit indirectly, at the State Department. Although, as you'll hear, he quit after the events of January 6th. We found this guest because he wrote a pair of fascinating and provocative articles for the Buddhist magazine Lion's Roar. One was entitled, Does Buddhism Mean You Have to Be a Liberal? The other was called, and I love this, The Elephant in the Meditation Room. Christopher Ford is a lay chaplain in the Soto tradition of Zen Buddhism. His teacher is Roshi Joan Halifax, who's been on this show a couple of times and is herself a longtime progressive, so that must be an interesting relationship. Ford is also a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's a graduate of Harvard, Yale, and Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar from January 2018 until January 2021. He served at the State Department as Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation. He's also worked at the National Security Council and as a congressional staffer. In this conversation, we talk about his argument for a Buddhist conservatism his experience in the Trump administration and his assessment of our current political state and the personal tools Ford recommends using in day-to-day -day life, some of which go right to the issue of not being attached to your views. We'll get started with Christopher Ford right after this. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers 
and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show. Today, it's Tidy Cats. As you may know, we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats, four of them. So we use a lot of kitty litter, and Tidy Cats is great. Uh, They have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low dust and lightweight with long-lasting ammonia control from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy Cats. Check them out. Christopher Ford, welcome to the show. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I I, uh, I read a quote from you recently where you said that you've sometimes felt like a a bit of a a zoo animal being a conservative in Buddhist and meditation circles. Can you you tell me a little bit more about that? I I would add to that and a a Buddhist in conservative hawkish foreign policy and national security circles. Neither of those things is uh, quite, I think, what people necessarily expect. So I hope it's a good zoo animal. You know, there are different things. You don't want to be sort of the one they all stand around and go, oh, my God, look at that. Um, I, I hope it's an interesting, like, you know, sort of maybe point of interest and fascination. And uh, But, you know, I, it's not for me to say. It could be either one, I suppose. <laughs> You'd rather be like a beautiful snow leopard than some animal, you know, hurling feces at the wall. I was going to say, mommy, mommy, he's throwing poop, right? I mean, you don't you don't really want to be that one, although, you know. Nature is as nature is, I suppose. I really want to hear, I want to let the audience hear you describe sort of how you envision conservatism through a Buddhist lens. And just to set the table a little bit, you wrote an article before the 2016 election with the amazing headline, The Elephant in the Meditation Room. And the subheadline was, does Buddhism mean you have to be a liberal? And your answer is is no. So can you just just lay out your basic thesis about 
how Buddhism informs your conservatism. Sure. One of the three tenets of the particular lineage that I've been studying in revolves around the idea of what they describe as not knowing, which is, I think, a way for Buddhists as a practice to accustom themselves to standing a little bit clear from fiery enthusiasms uh, in the sense that, you know, I think meditation encourages us to have at least a little bit of distance and detachment, even from the things that, that get our own blood boiling. And, and I think that's a really healthy instinct uh, when it comes to meditation practice and engaging with humans and finding ways to be compassionately engaged with the world. That's something that I see Buddhism as one of the many things uh, that, that Buddhism teaches, whether it's Buddhist or not, I suppose, um, really any, any good meditation practice encourages a little bit of that uh, you know, stop for a moment, take a breath, recenter yourself, and, and use that as sort of the foundation for engaging with everything else that one has to engage with. And I think at least traditional conservatism can offer some of that sensibility in the policy arena as well. I mean, I think uh, those of us who you know I consider to be really traditional conservatives often bring a almost a, a, a Burkean kind of sensibility to to policy questions. To be a little suspicious of those who have their fiery enthusiasms for policy outcomes. So, you know, it's like, well, be careful. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. We should be thoughtful and prudent about moving forward and not sort of rush headlong over the precipice because you don't know whether there is a happy green field of good policy outcomes waiting there or a giant crevasse that you didn't bother to look for uh, before plunging forward. And I think some of that uh, skepticism of easy answers and a commitment to continued, you know, if necessary, just plodding forward on hard paths that, that practice can teach. I think that's an important thing that conservatives can bring to the policy environment and being a little bit of a break to the the fevers of others. Uh, and that's that's a that's probably a good thing. And I see a lot of I see there there's some some synergies there perhaps or or parallelisms if nothing else. Can you define Burkean? Burke, uh, an English parliament who is best remembered, uh, sort of an icon in conservative circles for his speaking out against the French Revolution and being worried about how the noble principles that it began with, worrying that what what might happen uh, and predicting the danger that, uh, as many revolutions do, that they will you know, sort of turn upon themselves. And you know, he's in, his, in effect, he sort of understood the incipience of the terror, as it were, uh, the Burkean uh, sort of sensibilities, I sort of think of as being kind of that little voice of, okay, that makes sense, but but don't get carried away. Take it easy, cool down, take a breath, don't go crazy here, don't become so in, uh, entranced or bewitched by your good idea or your right answer that you discover yourself thinking that that right answer is so right that it is an altar upon which everything else should be sacrificed in its pursuit. And I think Burkean conservatives bring to the table that sensibility. It means that we sometimes have to spar against people on our side of the aisle, too. I think uh, bringing that kind of a Burkean mode, if you will, to the policy arena is uh, is often really helpful <laughs> and with a bit of luck can prevent, uh, prevent enthusiasms from tipping over into... Uh, you know, there's a fine line between passion, uh, which we need, right? I mean, we need to care about the world. Passion helps fuel that. It's the energy for doing good things and accomplishing, hopefully, things that are at least trying to make the world a better place. But, uh, but you know, passion, you have to be careful not to slip over that sort of quiet line into, you know, fanatical zeal, because that ends up being more destructive than constructive. And I think the a Burkean, you know, set of spectacles can help guard against that to some degree. But I could see how there would be a f another fine line 
between passion and passivity, that if you take not knowing too far this intellectual humility that is certainly a part of, as I understand it, the Buddhist tradition, if you take that too far, you could end up, you know, sitting in the lotus position and doing absolutely nothing. Quite right. And and it's, and I think a, a good Buddhist practice looks for an Aristotelian mean between disengagement and engagement. Compassion requires, and the service of compassion requires caring about things. You can't just reach that I don't give a damn conclusion. That's fair. And having that care drives what you're trying to do. But I think if you grab onto things too much. Maybe it's like running a steeplechase carrying an egg. If you hold it too loosely, you're going to drop the darn thing and the whole thing. You won't get the egg to the destination. But if you grip it fanatically tight, you're going to break it. So you have to find that, I'm shifting terms again, the golden spot where it's not too hot and not too cold. And, and we don't get an easy formulaic bright line answer to that. We have to just sort of live that uh, that tap dance, if you will, on an ongoing basis. And I see that's what practice is. And I think Having something of that sensibility in the policy world is, uh, I hope at least, very useful. But I would imagine the, that your conservatism, and I don't know this for sure, so you'll you'll tell me, uh, that your conservatism goes beyond just a Burkean slash Buddhist intellectual humility to an actual embrace of some policies. So I, off the top of my head, when I think of conservative the big conservative pushes of the last couple of decades, I think of uh, the Iraq war. I think of tax cuts. I think of uh, trying to limit access to abortion. I think of trying to reimagine immigration and social security. So there, there are lots of big, bold conservative efforts that I'm just rattling off the top of my head that I'm wondering where, where uh, you, you must have to, take a stand in some way on some of these? Oh, certainly. I was just simply trying to identify the ways in which what I think of as a conservative sensibility overlaps with with Buddhism, at least most obviously to me. Um, as a conservative, I you know, have had a, all sorts of policy positions over time. I've, I've been working professionally in Washington since the mid-1990s. I may come at them from more traditional policy reasons of, of thinking rightly or wrongly that, that you know X is the right way to approach a particular type of problem, I think the Buddhism maybe sort of leavens that. And it's it's sort of almost a check on myself to some degree as well. I mean, I tend to come at things from a policy perspective, from a more, you know, a more or less, less hawkish perspective, more of a free market perspective. And uh, although in, in social issues, I tend to be more on the, more on the libertarian side of things. But uh, usually people have employed me in Washington to work on the foreign policy and national security. So my domestic views are not not super relevant from a professional perspective. So staying on your hawkishness, I'm curious, how how do you understand that within the framework of Buddhism? I think there's a common conception, and it may be a misconception, that any force is out of bounds if you're a real Buddhist. That is a very common um, perception. Um, I think, myself, it is, it is a misperception. It's certainly hasn't been the position of Buddhist societies historically. Um, I think some of this may be an artifact of the fact that in the West, in particular, we, uh, you know, at least amongst the convert community, and certainly myself uh, as an example, um, I think the stereotype is probably strongest there, uh, that, that uh, you know, Buddhism entails necessarily a kind of rigid pacifism. And, and I don't think historically that's been the case where societies have been Buddhist. There have been Buddhist leaders 
for a long, long time, uh, some of the very iconic ones, um, Ashoka um, from the, uh, I think the Mauryan dynasty, if I recall correctly, in India, who is, I believe, the first actual ruler of a state or empire to, he actually converted to Buddhism and is remembered in the Buddhist community for the last, you know, <laughs> couple of thousand years as, uh, as sort of a paragon of, a, of a Buddhist virtue in, in as a king. And his Successors understood statecraft enough to know that it has its needs and that you, to some degree you betray something uh, and your stewardship of the interests and welfare of the people that, in, in his case, he ruled, uh, if you are utterly ignorant of or refuse to engage in any way with the politics of force and statecraft. It's a challenging world and, and you know, the challenge for a ruler is to how to be compassionate and forceful in the right degree. It's that Aristotelian mean again. So the challenge is how to live out compassion in a way that is appropriately strong in order to preserve interests that are important, uh, to, to preserve the well-being and the, the safety and indeed the lives of people who, you know, for whom one is at least temporarily a, a steward of, of the public interest. That's There's no easy bright line way to do that, but I think it's that toggling back and forth along the continuum that is the fundamental challenge of statecraft. And as I see it, Buddhist societies historically have never pretended away that that is a, that that is a challenge that needs to be grappled with. And even to this day, I mean, you, you point out in, in some of your writings that the Dalai Lama explained that, uh, in his words, wrathful, forceful action, as long as it has a compassionate motivation, can be appropriate. And, and then after the death of Osama bin Laden, apparently the Dalai Lama uh, justified that as an appropriate countermeasure. And here, here too, I think sensibility it makes a difference. It doesn't make all the difference. And in a good, you know, having your heart in the right place doesn't. I'm not suggesting that excuses doing any damn thing. But um, I think what he has been able to point to, and and. And it goes back in his career, I think, quite a long way. I recall reading a story of him writing a letter to Tibetan government officials as the Chinese communists were closing in in 1959. And he had just, the Dalai Lama had just escaped to exile and uh, wrote a letter back to them. They'd asked for advice. And his advice was you know, to, he told them to take up a position uh, positions as generals in what remained of the Tibetan government and to try to negotiate with the Chinese communist forces to preserve Tibet's freedom, but that if that were not possible to, you know, meditate on it wholeheartedly. And he left it to them to struggle with, as a practice in a sense, to struggle with the call of whether to be uh, peaceful or, or wrathful in that case. And he clearly did not rule out wrathful. Um, and that certainly doesn't mean that any wrathful answer is the right one, right? I mean, we have, we face ethical challenges of toggling back and forth between extremes like that in our daily lives in a much smaller way uh, all the time. And we struggle our way forward trying to find the humane and decent thing to do. But that doesn't always mean letting everything go and not taking a stand. Sometimes, sometimes one must, but I think it also matters where one's heart is when one does. Coming up, Christopher talks about his experience in the Trump administration, his decision to resign after January 6th, and his view that moderation can be strategically advantageous. That is after this. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs, 
like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com deals. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Many of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. This is something I've spoken about at length for many years with with my therapist as somebody with a pronounced tendency toward overscheduling, working on figuring out what I care most about, what matters most to me has been very useful when it comes to setting priorities. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. Let's go back to your article pre-2016 election, your op-ed in, in Lion's Roar magazine laying out you know, so your vision of a Buddhist-inflected conservatism. I'm curious, after having written that, did you, did you go on to vote for Donald Trump? I keep my voting decisions to myself. I did work for him um, and tried to bring a little bit of what I hoped. I you know, imagined that a, uh, you know, sort of, thoughtful Birkin would bring to the to the policy arena. Uh, I hope that was useful in some respect. I know I occasionally made some enemies amongst folks on my side. Uh, as I, as I, I think I mentioned a few minutes ago, I think having that kind of sensibility, you know, it's not always appreciated because especially in this day and age on both the right and the left, I think our political system is you know, not not knowing is not its problem. It's it's got you know, it is not uh, it is not paralyzed by self doubt. Um, no one in the political arena right now has the slightest doubt that where they are coming from, and apparently is is absolutely the right thing to do, and it is so transcendently right that uh, the other side shouldn't just lose the policy debate. The other side should be, I don't know, driven from the field and their villages burned down and the earth salted behind them. That seems to be the modern political psychology. And that seems to be to be a really toxic and, and problematic one from the perspective of not knowing. And let me put it this way. On both sides of the aisle, there's no shortage of folks who never came across a good idea that they didn't conclude had to be done stupidly or recklessly. Um, there's a lot to be said for taking the good idea that's wrapped in uh, I don't know, you know, wrapped in a shroud of nuttiness with sharp spikes of insanity poking out of it. You know, there, there's a lot to be said for like chipping off the sharp spikes of insanity so that you can actually like move the good idea forward. That's being, that's not being disloyal. That's actually being true to the agenda uh, in a sense. Um, but it's not always appreciated as such. Donald Trump is a lot of things. I I don't think intellectually humble uh, is one of them. Um so he he does not, as far as I can tell, embody the the kind of conservatism that I'm hearing you describe. Did you have any qualms about going to work for him? And just to be clear, it's not like you were interacting with Donald Trump on on the daily. You were working in in a pretty specific foreign policy realm, but 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 nonetheless, you were quote unquote working for him. Was that an issue for you in any way, given how you envisage conservatism? 
Yes and no. I mean, I think it was a more extreme version of what I think any political appointee policy person faces to some extent uh, and always has in the sense that, I mean, I've never, I used to have, I, I don't say it a lot now because you might offend someone because it might be taken as a finger point, but I used to always say that I'd never met anybody in all my years in Washington who, you know, 100% agreed fully with absolutely everything the boss did. Uh, you, you know, it's a complicated world. That's not true in any context. And, you know, everyone's got to have a, an idea in their head of when they walk and when they don't. I didn't myself get sucked into anything that forced me to jump across that line until the very end. And I, I did speed up my resignation. I mean, we were all leaving anyway, of course, in uh, in early January. But uh, I, I had submitted my letter of resignation on the 4th of January. Um, and gave it a couple of weeks to spool things down, make sure my staff was taken care of, make sure transition was going as well as I could and, and get out of there. But after the 6th of January and a day of soul searching, I resubmitted my letter and walked out the door immediately that same afternoon. So, I mean, I guess I did come across a line at the very end, um, but it was the very end. So I don't want to take too much credit for that. It was a fairly costless decision to leave two weeks early. But, uh, um, you know, after the 6th uh, in the Capitol, um, I... I, I couldn't stay. After resigning, you you wrote another op-ed in the Lions Roar magazine, uh, Zen and the Moral Courage of Moderation. And you laid out a lot of the things you've said thus far in this discussion, you know, your kind of diagnosis of where we are as a culture with this lack of not knowing on both sides. And this, I think, I believe you called this extremity bias. And I, I'm curious well, A, if you've got, if you want to say more about that, the, the floor is yours. And perhaps more importantly, B, where do we go from here? How, how, how can we, as people listening to you, be better citizens to have more intellectual humility? I don't profess to have any kind of a magical answer. I mean, part of me wants to say that uh, it's nice to advocate. Um, it's harder to model. And I think that may be one of the things that practice as a Buddhist could help encourage us to learn. Um, I would like to envision a future in which after a few years or less, hopefully, it's, it's not just that people have been preached to about, hey, hold on, this, is, this isn't, this isn't the, the way that we should be going. We need to, to learn a bit more sort of, you know, self-awareness and humility and, uh, and, and prudence in policy. But I think also to reinforce, even for those who have an agenda, that it, sometimes that actually is the best way to pursue your agenda. The, you know, there's a friend of mine who likes to say, you know, well, if you want it bad, you get it bad. Um, and I think to some degree, there is a practical lesson as well as just a moral one. Um, and it may be that the practical lesson is one that is perhaps more appealing to the entrenched political camps. If you really want to move whatever your particular agenda is forward, um, it's very possible, and I think likely, that doing it with a sort of fever pitch intensity and devil take the hindmost blindly charging forward without fear of consequences kind of approach that may be very satisfying from a kind of virtue signaling perspective because you're you know you're doing god's work or whatever it may be um but but even from a pragmatic policy perspective it doesn't always actually get you where you need to go um i think what the trump administration will probably find that is in a number of areas where they might have been able to have more staying power in the policy arena um, there may be things where, by virtue of plowing forward in a really unreflective way, they may have uh, squandered the chance to come up with 
answers that have more staying power rather than ones that are, you know, someone comes in and a couple of years later flips the light switch and turns it all off or, or goes 180 degrees in a different direction. One of the things that I'm proudest of in the administration is the degree to which a whole bunch of folks, and I was only one of many, many people working on this, were able to bring about a very significant shift in U.S. Uh, strategy with respect to sort of great power competitive dynamics, um, particularly with respect to China. Um, and the Biden administration has been very consistent with that approach. I mean, yes, differences in tone and tenor and all the usual flavor distinctions that one expects from policy changes in Washington, that's fine. Um, but the United States has done what I, I'm frankly, uh, with a rapidity that I find really surprising. Um, has made a very real change in how it approaches sort of strategic competitive posture vis-a-vis China uh, in in the world. That, you know, the kind of thing that, that traditionally takes a long time for the ship of state, the big bureaucracy, the big super tanker to, to change its course bearing. And it's done in a way that has, we've ended up with a policy consensus across the board. And it has staying power by virtue of that very, bipartisanship. And there are, you know, I'm sure there were things that the Trump administration could have done more of to make stick better had it been, had a little bit more, a little bit more not knowing in the leavening, if you will. Uh, And I think that's a lesson that I think a lot of policymakers can probably learn. If you want your policy to stick um, just, you know, four years, um, there is value in engaging with, in, you know, building buy-in, at least to some degree, with those who don't see things exactly as you do. But there's a lot about policy that is messy and contingent and and uh, morally unsatisfying because it involves compromise. But to some degree, it's that degree of contingency and compromise, which can, it does not always, but which can ensure that it actually works and is adopted and stays in place. So if you care about long-term agenda, rather than just virtue signaling in the short term, you have to be thinking in, a, I think, a more you know, a little bit more prudential Burkean kind of kind of mode. Coming up, Christopher talks about practical tools for bringing Buddhist practice into everyday life, even in the midst of extremely stressful days. That's after this. I had a very pleasant experience shopping on quince.com. Very easy to use website, and they've got a terrific selection. I bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. This is perhaps a bit idiosyncratic, but one of the experiences that my son, Alexander, loves is mini golf. We recently went to a mini golf uh, themed restaurant in uh, in Denver where we were traveling. And uh, when we go to Montauk, which is our favorite beach town here on the East Coast, we play mini golf at Putt-Putt all the time. Alexander, his buddies, me 
And in one way or another, these experiences are really what become the, the most memorable and important part about taking trips. Which brings me to Viator, which is a website and app where you can book travel experiences, everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. With over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries, there's something for everyone. I have used Viator myself. I find it to be incredibly helpful. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Let's talk about individ- – you do have some interesting tools for individuals, all of us who are sort of operating in this political environment, whether we're in the United States or or anywhere else, because it seems like uh, many, many developed countries are dealing with – and developing countries are dealing with po- political polarization. So you, uh, you've got really interesting ideas for how we can approach – current events. One of them is, you call it stop check. Can you describe what that is? Sure. My meditation practice largely fell apart um, when I was in government. Um, with some helpful nudging from Roshi Joan, I've actually restarted again recently, but uh, it, it, it it went down the tubes um, pretty early on. But I don't feel like I entirely abandoned practice in the sense that I found myself sort of therapeutically engaging in, I don't know, just a, a, what, what I described as stop check um, to myself, of just a, a every once in a while in the middle of some kind of a crazy, you know, frenetic course of events, just a quick stop and, uh, you know, a couple of breaths, a couple of, uh, just a, the kind of recentering. Usually people weren't around when I do this. It would be between meetings or whatever else it would be. But a kind of recentering loosely analogous to what one would do in Zazen and sitting meditation where, you know, the monkey mind gets going and you start thinking about uh, whether you've responded to that guy's email or what you've got to do tomorrow morning or whether you left the refrigerator door open or whatever it might be. And you need to sort of like just stop that, go back to your breath just for a second. But the the ability to sort of take even just a quick moment and back out and recenter and breathe, uh, I found useful and to some degree at least in keeping me from going completely nuts uh, in the course of a, of a stressful, you know, government day not a dramatic solution. It's not a miracle answer, but, uh, you know, it, even taking a little bit of an edge off over time, I think helps keep you more in the place that you need to be in order to, you know, sort of wisely navigate back and forth between the two ends of the Aristotelian spectrum and find that mean, which is the right answer for whatever you happen to be, what you ever happen to be needing. Yeah, that sounds absolutely right to me. Um, and I don't believe in Miracle answers. Uh, another tactic that you recommend is something called structured doubt. There's a, the old saying from Helmut von Moltke, the elder, um, from the Prussian general staff and the Franco-Prussian War back in 1870, that, you know, no plan survives first contact. In other words, like you can have a great plan, but, you know, the world is complicated. And the moment your brilliant plan hits the reality of the first engagement, it's going to go out the window. But that doesn't mean that planning is useless. I, planning is useful uh, in the sense that it gets you thinking about alternatives and 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 to help you acculturate yourself to the, the conceptual agility of responding to something new. And structured doubt is, you know, maybe sort of a way to just institutionalize that a little bit. It's like, okay, what are the assumptions behind 
you know, I clearly think that whatever I'm trying to do is the right answer, but what lies behind that? And, you know, what if I'm wrong? Can I build, you know, is there an answer from a policy choice from the perspective of how does my preferred outcome stand up? I mean, I hope that it stands up well against your optimal fact pattern on the ground, right? I'm, if all of my assumptions are correct, I dearly hope that what I'm saying is the right answer, because if not, I'm not very clever. But you should also be thinking about well, what if my assumptions aren't correct and how well does this particular choice stand up against them? And it may be worthwhile, especially because we really don't know what the future is going to bring. The world is a very stubborn thing. It loves to surprise our assumptions. I guess what I try to think of is like, can you do that in your own just day-to-day encounter with people um, or with whatever your daily stressors are or and reel that aperture in just down to how, how do I deal with this person in this meeting? And if you, know, you still got to make decisions, not making a decision is a decision. So this is not a license to to fail to make decisions, but it's a it's a, an encouragement to self-awareness and humility um, and agility because you may need to redirect. It's a I don't know, it's, it's a way of trying to think about these things through the prism of just how your frontal cortex bumps up against the rest of the world in a really immediate sense. Nothing grand or, uh, or, or highfalutin. No, but I think this makes this is potentially really useful, especially as you uh, t- in those moments when you say you know you sort of reeling, <laughs> reeling in the aperture, or just getting down to something very specific, humdrum, mundane, and and you're thinking about okay, how am I going to deal with this person? You do want to imagine. And I think this is the appropriate application of structured doubt. You do want to imagine that uh, how you think it's going to go. And then you want to imagine perhaps my imagining is wrong. And how else could it go? Or, or else you're, you're likely to be surprised in a, in a bad way. Yeah. And if you're very lucky, things will work out exactly as you want. And you're going to be the hero. But, uh, you know, that's not... The usual outcome. There's always some wrinkle, right? Uh, and uh, the more fixated we are upon the knowings of assuming that we've got this all under control, the less ready we'll be for some of the crap that's going to for sure happen. I have the. I've mentioned this before on the show that I have these sort of Buddhist inflected communications coaches I've been working with for three years who really helped me sort of change the, my interpersonal communication style and. They have a concept called provisional language, which means that when you're making statements, you want to include lots of provisional language indicating that you really don't know how things are going to turn out or you don't know what the causes and conditions are in the mind of another person behind their behavior. So perhaps you did this because you felt X, Y, and Z instead of, oh, you did this because you assumed X, Y, and Z. Really having baking into your language a an intellectual humility an understanding of impermanence and entropy and the concept there is that actually just by learning to talk that way it changes the way you think i think that's a really wise point and i think it changes the way you think the other direction too speaking in certainties i think conduces to felt certainty uh, and especially to the degree that that's, that's yes. unjustified, um, that's a serious liability. Another, to state the blazingly obvious, another gigantic concept and practice in the Buddhist world is compassion. I think back to, I think it was George W. Bush running in 2000 as a compassionate conservative. 
I think the critique from folks on the left is that conservatism lacks compassion because you, know, you guys aren't willing to spend money on social programs or you don't want to take away people's guns or whatever. How is conservatism compassionate in your conception of conservatism? Well, I, I would say that it's compassionate in the sense, or can be. I certainly wouldn't want to, <laughs> to characterize it as always being anything. But I think it is capable of being compassionate to some degree in the sense that it is compassionate to be stern sometimes. Uh, it is compassionate to take a stand and to say no or to um, to be forceful sometimes. I mean, uh, those who are you know parents, I think, recognize this perhaps more immediately than, than at least I used to before being a parent. But you know, it is it's not it's not truly compassionate to be utterly indulgent uh, of someone who you care about and who is in your care. Um, it's not truly compassionate, even just as a friend. What Plutarch said that a, a true friend is not a flatterer. If I'm truly your friend, I don't just, yes, man, every damn thing you say and agree with you unquestionably and feed you whatever BS line, you know, massages your ego at the moment. If I truly care about you, I sometimes need to tell you some hard truths. Uh, and, and I see that sternness as actually being compassionate. Now, not that you can't, you know, <laughs> you know, all of these things can easily, anything can slide over into, uh, you know, across some line into pathology. And But I think there's a, you know, a, a compassion without some degree of willing to be stern in appropriate circumstances isn't really, I mean, that's like a betrayal of one's, uh, it's a betrayal of the purpose of compassion to be, to, to help, to, to be ameliorative. And um, I think compassionate conservatism at least aspires to be appropriately stern where that needs to be done. Being uninterested in helping others is, is a, you know, is a, is a failing here. Um, but being interested, it is sometimes necessary to be, what could be perceived to be harsh. And, and you know, parenting may be the, the clearest example of this kind of thing, but, you know, sometimes you got to say no. Sometimes that's ridiculous. Sometimes, you know, sometimes some degree of punishment is in order in order to, to be compassionate. And it's a failure of one's compassionate duty not to act sternly in those circumstances. The hard part, of course, is knowing what the, when the circumstances are truly upon you and how far to go. And uh, the hard part is, is figuring out where to be in the middle. And I think in that respect, both stereotyped political camps bring important qualities to the table. And so policymaking isn't about either one of them running the board. Uh, you know, that's, that's where our modern psychology of having to salt the earth behind the other guy because you've destroyed him. Uh, that's where we do ourselves a terrible dis disservice. Um, because policymaking through this prism, if you're toggling back and forth on trying to find some Goldilocks point, policymaking necessarily means having to keep the other guy in the game. Uh, because that other guy is going to have skills or instincts or something to bring to the table in some admixture, you don't know what, that will be useful to some degree. And if your political culture involves exterminating those who don't think like you do, you won't be able to to, to draw upon whatever strengths they can bring. That admixture won't be possible as it would otherwise have been because you've, you know, shrunk the bench of talent that is available to helping make the world a better place. And that's just stupid. Final question, uh, just, just going back to something you said earlier about how there's a sort of insufficient amount of 
not knowing on both ends of the political spectrum, sort of a lack of, of humil intellectual humility on the left and on the right. You know, I could hear folks on the left saying, well, is that a false equivalency? Because, I mean, if you look at the right right now, you got a whole, you got tens of millions of people arguing full that the election was stolen with zero evidence. You've got some of the the vaccine stuff going on uh, on the right as well, where ev arguments are being made without evidence. Are there truly as robust analogs on the left, or do you really feel that it's really truly going on in the same way on both sides? I was trying to be very careful and diplomatic. <laughs> I think what um, I think there is a problem of a you know sort of a, a not knowing deficit on on both sides. I didn't warrant that at this moment in time, each suffers from this problem to the same degree. Uh, and maybe I'll try to still remain diplomatic and uh, leave that question of degree unanswered. But I think there is no law of nature that these things are entirely parallel and in the same degree, right? I mean, we're having some problems on my side of the aisle right now. Um, you know, it's been the other direction before, that's not really the important point. The important point is both sides can and should do a lot better. More structured doubt. In closing, if people want to get more information about you, to read your writings, et cetera, et cetera, where can they go? Well, there isn't a lot of Buddhist stuff, only a few of the essays. But uh, if you want to walk out on my policy writings, uh, I do have a personal website. It's uh, the New Paradigms Forum. And it's uh, um, www.newparadigmsforum.com. Christopher Ford, thank you very much for coming on. Appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure talking. Thanks so much, Dan. Likewise. Thanks again to Christopher. Also, big thanks to the people who work incredibly hard to make this show a reality two and a half times a week. Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant. And the good folks over at Ultraviolet Audio who do our audio engineering. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode with my man, Jeff Warren. We're going to talk about his expansive view of what practice means. And there'll be a lot of uh, hilarious banter. So that's Wednesday with Jeff Warren. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths. And where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.amic slash you know. Welcome to Pura. The most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here... You're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the outer lands. There's no crime in Pura, no murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you.
Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus.